Our guest today is very much a current game developer producing titles for the iOS, Apple TV and Mac platforms at his company Strange Flavor, alongside his brother Adam. But the foundation for their success has its roots firmly in the first generation of home micros. To tell us about his history in computing and what lessons he learned along the way to prepare him for a career in video games is our guest today, Aaron Fothergill. Welcome, Aaron. Hi. Hi, Aaron. Take us back to the start then, please, Aaron. Um, how did you first discover computers? Um, it was a friend of mine who was a year older and way back, um, you used to have to pick options for the third year of school, uh, secondary school. So that, so that would decide what um, subjects you'd do for your own levels. And a friend of mine was a year ahead, and so he was in the third year. And he said, you've got to do computer studies because it's a complete sky. All we do is mess around on computers in the lessons and go on field trips to places where they have actual working computers. And I thought, oh, that sounds good, good for me. I, I could do with the sky lesson. So I, I picked computer studies on that, just purely on that basis. And a year later, I'm sat down in front of a pet, you know, playing Space Invaders on, on the pet. And um, like, yeah, okay, I can enjoy this. <laughs> uh -huh. What sort of time are we talking about here? What year? Uh, 81, I think that was. Okay. So yeah. this was in the UK. So, I mean, the, the yeah. computer literacy project hadn't really kicked in at that point. So No, uh, we, were, we were learning uh, CECIL, which was a brilliant language for learning. Uh, computer Education Schools Instruction Language only had 14 instructions. Uh, and pretty much was a really, it was a good basis for assembler because there were really, really simple instructions. Um, you know, so, so, I mean, one of the instructions, by the way, was a line feed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you, you, you kind of, you see where it's going on that. So in terms of learning how to deal with a computer in a ridiculously simple instruction set, it was brilliant. And of course, basic. Um, we had a, a two pets in the classroom, which you had to, go on a timesheet to, to get half an hour on uh, after school and stuff. Uh, and we had a, a, a terminal link to Farnborough Tech where they had a, a mainframe there running and we, we uh, were programming BASIC on the terminal there. Um, and, and most of the time it was writing down your programs on uh, sheets of uh, basically a paper it was especially gridded paper so that you could actually write you know a letter or a line a line uh, of code uh, blocked out by things so that the guy at farmer tech could type it in accurately okay and, so he typed they, it in at the other end <laughs> that's it yeah some, someone would actually type it in and then you've got your inputs that you also put in at the bottom and, and they type in the inputs and then they'd send you a printout of the output Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Processing by post. <laughs> yeah. Well, they also get you because you, you, you do that like once a week, sort of in, in the lessons, and you get your results next week. And the problem was this was for both Cecil and Basic. And if the, if the teacher accidentally sent them a Basic program um, instead of a Cecil program for a, what something that they were marked as Cecil, they would still type it in. As in, into their Cecil compiler, and you'd get back basically a, a ton of a ton of syntax errors, basically, because they're just blindly typed in. It's obviously you know whatever students are available just to just to type these things in and not care. 
and you just get back garbage completely. Yeah, uh, syntax yeah. error for every single line of code. Yeah, that's, that's a week wasted, you know. Yeah, yeah. So how long would it be before you got a micro at home? Uh, actually, it took me two and a half years, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents uh, couldn't really afford anything. I, I really wanted to get a Spectrum because it was – I thought I could – might, I might just be able to persuade my parents to be able to afford one of those. And I like the colors. I, I just love the adverts. Um, and um, what happened was they, they couldn't afford anything, but I just went uh, over to all my mates who had computers and it's like, look, I can write you games. I, I'd already started writing simple games then. I can write you a game or we can start doing this and uh, and teach you a bit about it. So because I hopped between lots and lots of different computers. So I learned all sorts of dialects of, of um, the basic. I even programmed on an Oric once. <laughs> and... Uh, you you basically kind of learn a lot of different quirks, things like uh, a friend of mine we, we uh, was was um, a neighbour down the road, so I got to play on his uh, Vic Twenty quite a lot, and started writing quite a few things, and then he got a memory pack, and all the stuff I'd I'd been working on that poked directly to the screen suddenly didn't work, so we had to find out the fact that the memory pack moves your screen address completely, so. Weird little things like that. Uh, And doing that same technique of poking to the screen actually taught me that um, you could actually have programs that self-wrote because one of my ones I iterated on a lot was the Star Wars TIE Fighter game where you've got the TIE Fighter moving around the screen and you're trying to line it up and shoot it. And um, I was constantly writing versions of that. And and my technique on, on all the Commodore machines was to poke the graphics directly to the screen memory. And one of the effects was when I accidentally got the address wrong, it poked this graphics all the way over my code because, of course, the code is in just another chunk of memory and yeah. it, on the, the, the PET and the VIC-20 and so on, the code isn't actually tokenized or anything. It's, it's just as is. So suddenly I, I see all this, all these TIE fighter graphics sort of splatted all over my code and I go, ooh, I could make code that writes itself. <laughs> <laughs> Which, which led to an interesting sideline in, in modifying friends' O-level projects to sort of t- tweak themselves. <laughs> actually, it wasn't so much friends, it was actually people who annoyed me <laughs> tended to end up with O-level projects that suddenly looked different at the end of the time they'd run them. <laughs> Some of the first viruses, almost. <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, this is, I, mean, I suspect other other versions of me in different multiverses went down more nefarious paths. <laughs> so um, in terms of the first computer you got then, you had desires for a ZX Spectrum. Did you get the Spectrum in the end? No. Uh, no? Okay. What happened was my, my dad got, uh, dad was in the RAF, so he, he got posted to uh, Hong Kong. And uh, basically the, one of the interesting features of being, of being living in Hong Kong was a, a place called Shang Shui Po. Uh, and the Golden Shopping Arcade, which was absolutely full of Apple clones. Okay. Uh, and this being the Apple II at the time. So my first actual computer that I owned was a Banana II. <laughs> and I still got it. I think it might still run. Like, the thing was there, you, you could buy a clone. Um, they started doing um, PC clones as well from, from the early PCs. Uh, but I, at the time, I was... In, into I got my Apple II and because I was getting all the bits for that and learning as much as I could. I had the problem that the, the, the sixth form I went to there couldn't do a computer studies course for A-level. 
So I, I had to self-teach, but I was teaching the O-level students uh, as well. So, so that got me out of trouble because I got, I got banned from the computer lab for not doing my homework and stuff, for the courses I was doing. And they had to unban me because the O-level students were dropping behind. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I've got here that your sort of first break came um, with the game Jitterbug on the Amiga ST format cover disc, but this is March 1989. So there's yeah. a gap there between well, the Apple clones. This, this is the thing. I, 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 spent, uh, I spent three years in Hong Kong from 83-26. So uh, that was kind of formative years in, in learning uh, especially finding out what sort of games I was liking to play at the time and so on, and writing all sorts of stuff. Uh, we got back to the UK and I was unemployed, uh, so I was doing all sorts. I was actually working in radio when I was in Hong Kong at BFBS, uh, and that's when I first got introduced to the Mac, um, because they got a Mac in. I was the resident kid who knew about computers, so I started programming on it, and it was like, wow, everything was very different, uh, and, 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 and like the, the way everything was like very much user orientated rather than teaching the users to learn how to use a computer. I could actually go to the people who are going to be using this thing and say, right, what do you do? And how can I make it work to what you do? And that was a very different kind of way of, of thinking uh, in terms of programming. And so I, I've been doing that, got back to the UK, was unemployed for quite a while um, because I, we, we'd been posted to Devon and I was somewhat overqualified for everything in Devon. Um, and there wasn't a lot of um, computer jobs. I was actually looking to work in, in as a studio engineer because I kind of got into the idea of music and radio and stuff. And the games writing was a sideline. So I was actually writing stuff. Adam got an ST and I'd started writing stuff on that, which is where uh, Jitterbugs actually came up from. And it wasn't until 89 that really I'd started sort of shifting into the, let's do something specifically. And the other problem I'd gone was I'd been to the, uh, to start up a business and the um, local uh, sort of North Devon business advice people said, oh, games industry, here's, here's a load of, in, of, of, of data we have for the games industry from 10 years ago. It's totally not viable. You shouldn't do a business in the games industry. <laughs> so, of course, I ignored them. I've done Jitterbugs, which uh, ST Amiga Format picked up on. And at the time, um, Mandarin were doing STOS. And I started programming. I've been doing programming in GFA Basic, which was what Jitterbugs were written in, as well as actually, I'd actually been selling um, uh, synth editors. I'd actually been doing those for a few years. That was actually going to be my first business. And um, I've been doing doing those in the background, writing synth editors for you know sort of MIDI controlled synths and so on. Switched it to games because that was more fun. Started writing stuff in Stoss, and then it, the, the the Mandarin contacted me and said, "Well, look, we need someone else to run the the Stoss club and support people writing games on Stoss." And they were doing a competition as well, uh, which I nearly won. Um, fortunately, the game. I wrote for that did better than the game that won when they released it as a pack. <laughs> okay, okay. So we'll just wind back there to to Jitterbug. Um, the, it was a puzzler, wasn't it? And it was the full no. game. Oh, it wasn't no, a puzzler. It no. was actually a, a, a scroller. It was based on a Steve Jackson board game called uh, The Awful Green Things from Outer Space. Ah, okay, okay. Uh, and the principle was the, the Awful Green Things has this, this wonderful game mechanic where 
you've got aliens invading your ship. It's it's a rip of um, of alien itself. So these aliens grow from eggs and start invading your ship, and you've got to wipe them out as the crew. And you've got a player playing as the aliens, a player playing as the crew. The the major game mechanic of that that's the really cool twist is that you get a random selection of weapons, of which any given weapon will have will have a completely random effect for this game. So basically, when you first fire the weapon at an alien or use a weapon on an alien, you don't know what it's going to do. <laughs> and then it may be good or bad, and then you know what it does. And then from then on, it's basically it's trying to find out what weapons actually work and, and use them. So Jitterbugs had the same thing. We, we did it so, so that you've got a, a zoo ship that's basically plummeting to Earth. It was a, a tile-based uh, plan view scroller, and it was actually up to 32 players over MIDI. Oh, cool. Okay, so that's yeah, where your synth experience comes in. Exactly. You know, yeah. I, that's another one. I, I, again, I'd seen a game called Midi Maze, I think it was called. Yeah. It's like a Pac-Man in, in 3D of up to 16 players and stuff like that. Right, we need to do that because Midi's perfect for that. Um, and um, so so the, the thing with Jitterbugs was you got, I think, four or eight weapons. I can never remember how many things I did for it, but basically the weapons would be randomized in each, each game depending to say what they would actually do. Some would actually capture the, 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 the escaped zoo animals and some would actually make them multiply uh, and, and, and so on, or some would just not have any effect. And then you'd run around and try and capture the zoo animals um, and get them to your escape pod and escape the ship before it burns up in the Earth's atmosphere. Um, so it was fairly, fairly simple, but it was my initial kind of foray into playing with tiled maps uh, and so on time. Uh, uh, and so on and um, parallax as well i think actually managed to get some parallax in there which i was quite chuffed with <laughs> nice nice and it was the full game that appeared on the magazine cover disc that's so true yes, yeah. how did you go about getting it into the magazine's hands was it like um, sending your single into radio one or how, how did it work i'm trying to remember actually i think i sent it in, into review or something okay um and and i think on the basis of i might sell it you know whatever and and they approached me and they said oh actually can we can we buy this for a cover disc oh okay so i think i got 150 quid for that and, and they, they sort of bought the rights to use it for the cover disc um and, and uh and kind of that was it and that 150 quid for me at the time was like yes because <laughs> <laughs> i was on the dole and it was you know i was i was looking at starting at my first company and, and so on at the time and that, that was a that was a big big thing <laughs> yeah yeah and then you talked about the opportunities that came about at mandarin software with um stoss so was that as a direct result of the cover disc is that how no uh, i think it's because i've been doing a few stoss games uh, I've been sort of experimenting with stoss, sort of stoss and starting i think i started work on sky strike at the time and they were doing their game, uh, what was it, I can't remember, the game, game, uh, games uh, something competition or whatever they were doing, to try and find, you know, basically you had to write a game in store, some limitations on what else you could use with it and so on. Um, and it was like, they, they, they'd seen, I submitted Sky Strike early, early versions of Sky Strike, and they loved it, so like, yeah, okay, it's going to be a shoe in here. And then they, sort of partway through it, I think, they, they said, oh, can you do, could you take over the Sloss Club? Um, and start sort of doing that. And like, okay, you know. So I started putting stuff together um, for for that one, and um, yeah, basically, we, I didn't win the competition. Um, that's the, a fun story in itself. 
but they put a game, put a pack together of four games, um, uh, it's called Games Galore, of which was Sky Strike, uh, Skate Tribe, and something Mouth, whatever. It's like a, a, a candy eating mouth game. Um, so they're all like really good games. And they had they didn't have a fourth game, so they asked us to write another. So we wrote Yomo for, for that one, uh, which was a quick crunch project to, to write this this um, sort of side scrolling game. And, uh, and that got released, and that actually did pretty well. And Sky Strike Plus, which was the full version of Sky Strike, because um, it was only Sky Strike Junior was on Games Galore, got released through uh, Atlantis Software. Okay. Which was a, a popular budget label at the time. Um, so, so that sort of did well. It was kind of a strange thing because they, I'd already kind of signed Sky Strike with Atlantis, but Mandarin wanted to put Sky Strike on uh, a version of Sky Strike on Games Galore, but Games Galore only was only allowing you one side of a disc per game because they wanted to get four games on two discs. Mm-hmm. So, um, and Sky Strike was fully was two discs. So um, we did it as Sky Strike Plus with Atlantis and Sky Strike Junior with um, on Games Galore. Yeah, and you were running the the Stoss Club. Just tell us a little <laughs> bit about that. Was that a case of uh, you pay a membership fee to be? That's it. Yeah, I mean, the idea was it was ten pound a year, and you would get six newsletters over what increasingly came a lot more than a year. To me, I, that's one of the things I struggled with was getting newsletters out on time. I, I must admit, I was terrible at that. Um, and um, the idea was the newsletter would have lots of useful content on, on how to, to write stuff. Um, and But the main in, important thing was it gave you a phone number, which was basically a direct line to me. So you could ring up and ask questions and then learn how, and, and, and if you're stuck, you could ring up the helpline and, and get help. Um, which led to me just automatically answering the phone in my sleep at some point because this was wide. <laughs> That's really interesting because uh, we interviewed Francois Lyonnais not so long ago. Yeah, yeah, he talked about how he had literally no feedback from from Stoss users. He was just working away on yeah. the next version of Stoss or Amos. This is kind of one of the the sort of problems was that uh, because they outsourced the helpline because they didn't have anyone internally that, that could deal with it they also didn't want Francois to be interrupted because it, it was a lot of work dealing just with the helpline itself um, and um, that ended up with them being disconnected from their own product I think and when Amos came along uh, I fell out with them over Amos Pro because Amos Pro was actually slower than Amos and uh, so it was less practical for writing games. It was a, it had a lot of fancy stuff, but it didn't actually expand what you could do. It just kind of made it slightly more nice programming, uh, but slower. Mm-hmm. So we kind of fell out there. The other problem was that instead of answering their own technical calls, they were just telling people to ring me. So my number was supposed to be secret. Mm-hmm. And rather than getting people to, to pay membership so they could use my number, they just gave them my number. Uh, and and uh, it suddenly a lot of my calls was dealing with people who were, didn't have a membership number. So I'm like, sorry, I can't. Oh, but can you? So you have a, a several minutes of like, look, you know, the reason I do this is I, I have to be able to afford to, to, to eat. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not a free support line, yeah. No, exactly. And, and surprisingly, that's, that's still a common thing nowadays. People still needing to eat. <laughs> Programming. <laughs> Um, and likewise, you did run the Amos Club as well, didn't That's you? That's true, yeah. So as soon as Amos came out, I actually wrote some of the uh, stuff to go on the Amos package. 
So I wrote um, the Magic Forest game that, that, that was on that. Um, and also, um, I, I actually wrote the, the, the original Amos tomes. I've written tome for, for Stoss, which was the, the, the map editor uh, for Stoss, which I'd done as a, a third-party product. And that was doing pretty well. So they asked me to write a small version for Amos to go with it. The problem being, it had to demo the menu system uh, that was in Amos, the pull-down menus. And unfortunately, they weren't ideal for that. Um, Transcribe really improved them a lot later, but, but the initial pull-down menus in Amos just did, didn't work very well. So it was kind of crippled by that. So we, we did that, put it in the package, and then I started writing the, the full version of Tome separately uh, after that, along with Sprite X. So I was writing games and sort of writing tools for people to use with Amos as well at the same time. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, just to pour some petrol on the fire, the Amiga Atari fire, <laughs> did you have a preferred user base between the Amiga users on Amos and the Atari the users? users the users themselves, I think, were were both uh, pretty cool. I, I don't think I had a preferred user base as such. I had a preferred machine. I okay. definitely preferred the Atari. Okay. Yeah, an ex-musician by this point, I decided to focus on, on writing games. Um, but because of the whole MIDI thing and because it was a very, very capable music computer um, and, and the, the simplicity of it for, for that as well, uh, I really did like programming the Atari. The Amiga kind of was, was nice for playing games on, but it just didn't sit with me well as an actual work machine. Uh, Amos jumped it out of toy to actually you can write something on this. Uh, and there's some quite serious things done with Amos that didn't get shown. Um, on, on the helpline, I dealt with um, one was a, a, a college that was teaching combat air control. And they were using networked Amigas to teach people how to do air traffic control. Uh, for aircraft with bombs on the wings. This was while I was writing Jet Strike as well, so there's a whole weird clash going on there. <laughs> um, and, um, and also a guy in China was writing, uh, using Sprite X and, and, and Amos to write the, the system that generated holograms for Chinese credit cards. Oh, okay. <laughs> so there's a lot of weird stuff because it opened up programming for a lot more people at the time because the, the initial versions of BASIC and everything on the Amiga were not stunningly practical mm-hmm. uh, like some of the initial home computers have been opening things up and Amos really did open it up for a lot of people mm-hmm. uh, and then of course you've got all the educational programs that, that kicked off uh, from, from people suddenly having Amos and thinking I'll sit there and go oh actually I can write an educational game for my kids mm-hmm. you know that, that was a, a, quite a big deal at the time it's 11 <laughs> o'clock for anyone wondering the bongs in the background. <laughs> yeah, that's the bell of doom. I, I, I live right next door to the clock tower. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned Jet Strike. Uh, I've got perhaps the first iteration of that in 91 was Jet Strike Junior. Is that correct? No, Jet no, Strike okay. Junior was actually the cover disc version. Okay, okay. Yeah, we did a part of the promo for it. We did a a couple of different cover disc versions. Uh, Jet Strike Junior was like a training level and a couple of normal levels with a couple of aircraft. So it was basically take the full version uh, and cut it back to to, uh, suit for a cover disc. And we did a fantasy strike on the basis of if Jet Strike did well, we were going to do a full fantasy with dragons and and flying owls and all sorts of weird things, you know, level. 
which I just did as a cover disc version. And I think I did a Jet Strike Junior Night Missions or something was a, was a, a third one for cover discs, just as a pure, let's see how many cover discs we can get this on kind of thing. Right, okay, because there's quite a gap from 91 to 93 when the full-blown jet strike... Yes, it was you know. It was 18 months of, of dead time on that. Uh, the, the initial version of jet strike was on, on for, for an EU 500, um, and that was over two discs. And then uh, we, we did jet strikes for the C, CD... Uh, jet strike AGA and CD32, and a bunch of called Team Hoy who, who were... Um, uh, published by our, our publishers, uh, they, they were based in Holland, and they did a game called Clockwiser. And there've been various attempts of other people to try and port Jet Strike to the PC, but most of them, most people who see my code have issues. I, I've had, the, everybody who's tried to port my code generally has gone mad or disappeared. <laughs> um, so. Team Hoy were the first ones to successfully take some of my code and actually do a port, but they they didn't quite get it right for the PC version. Um, the, the, some of some of it doesn't quite play well, play as well as it should. But but it was a good attempt. Um, so so really the the best version of Jet Strike um, for for the pure Amiga is the AGA version because mm-hmm. that one we had quite a bit of time to play about with. Um, and get, uh, Nigel Critton did us some really cool AGA routines and the extra joystick routines and stuff. And we kind of got to go to town on that one. Um, and, and of course, with the AGA version, there was no memory restriction as well. So, so we knew we had a reasonable amount of memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we could open up a few more things there, whereas the, the straight Amiga version was limited by the half, half meg of memory sort of thing on, on, on the A500. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the version that Amiga Power said was the 28th best game, best Amiga game of all time in 1996. Yeah. <laughs> so it was obviously very well received. Um, and this was still developed in Amos, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, it was yeah. actually a hybrid. Uh, I'd started on STOS of doing sort of, uh, of using STOS and machine code. Uh, so so kind of got fairly proficient in 68K. Um, and by, by the time Amos came along, Francois rather nicely gave me a copy of the source code of Amos to play with once I'd started seriously working on Jetstrike. And one of the things, that, mainly because I found a bug in Amos that if you had a main loop that was over 32K long, it didn't work because he, he'd used, he'd actually not used a jump, he'd actually used um, a branching instruction to, to do the loops which was limited to 32K uh, uh, because it was only, only a 16-bit address. And um, so um, he negated the source code to sort of see if I could fix that and realized the best thing I could do is just do an actual go-to, which did a straight jump, which was allowed me this uh, you know, 32-bit jump then, so that was okay. And um, the, the, the end result was under there sort of playing around and I was trying to eat as much speed as, as I could out of the game. And realized I couldn't completely do it in Amos. So I started doing more and more machine code sort of bits. So I'd written quite a few extensions for Amos by that point. So a lot of Jetstrike was basically the Jetstrike extension. So there's a, there's a whole load of stuff to deal with all the sprites and a lot more of the, 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 the mapping stuff was a, a special optimized version of Tone. I'd optimized Amos to not do a lot of stuff um, that it did that made things a lot nicer to program in but not so optimal when you're actually running it. So, so a lot of things were cut out. There were safety features um, for, for, for um, 
you know, programmers. So basically, if you got anything wrong in this version of, of Amos, it went very, very horribly wrong. But actually, compiling to it was fine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so cool. So you had your own customized version of Amos, which you yeah. compiled just for the purpose of, of your own games programming. Very cool. Um, and then on the CD32, you mentioned you really went to town on it. You put a few extras in there. Um, what kind of extras did you have in there? Well, the first thing of the CD32 is we were the first game to do a professionally studio-recorded soundtrack with vocals and everything, which uh, was it um, not Amiga? Yeah, Amiga Power, actually, called, called Adam singing A Crime Against Humanity. <laughs> <laughs> this is, so your brother was the vocalist? The, yeah, we, we, had, we, we had a, a thing of let's see who can actually actually sing, and Adam came out not the worst. <laughs> but, the, the, I mean, the thing was it was a really serious soundtrack I, I had a fair light series two at the time um so so uh, and adam was really coming into his forte then as, as a music proper musician so um he did most of the stuff i wrote the lyrics for um, drop the bomb and fast jet fever and i played keyboards on fast jet fever and the triangle on the drop on drop the bomb <laughs> <laughs> and adam sat down and recorded the entire album which is actually available um on itunes and stuff now so he actually released the jet strike album last year as a remix, it's on iTunes, Spotify, the whole lot. I think he did it through a distribution service thing. And Amiga, uh, some, uh, there's a, there's a Matt Smith, for, who's a fan of Amiga Power at the time, has released an, uh, an Amiga Power album, uh, which he kickstarted last year, which has got one of the Jet Strike tunes. It's actually got Drop the Bomb as a complete, unique remix on there. Because uh, Amiga Power really seemed to, even though they, they didn't, they, they kind of insulted Adam singing, they really did like Drop the Bomb. So, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you have, if you've got any links for those, let me have them after I chat and I'll yes, put them in yeah. the description so people yeah. can find them. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you're coding on the CD32. I mean, when the CD32 came out, Commodore were already in trouble at this point. They were dead. They were, they, they were dead. <laughs> did, did you get any support from Commodore in developing for that platform? Uh, we got a dev kit, which was good. Uh, okay. and, which was interesting. As a dev kit, it was a drive emulator that you could plug in on the back of the CD32 that let you connect to floppy drives. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, that was the dev, the dev kit. And then basically you had to hack in. The first thing we had to do was hack out the the Commodore spinning up logo on Startup because that used all your memory. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and and the, the dev process for it was was insane because this was the really, really early days of CD burning. So no one had a CD burner. Commodore had a CD burner. So what you'd do is you'd write the first iteration of your game um, with as much data as you can that you needed to have on the CD running off the floppy emulator. So, so, so basically, you've got a bunch of a couple of floppy drives connected up. You run the game off one floppy with, with your initial chunk of data on the second floppy, and you can have a CD in of your music, but it wasn't. I don't think it was trackable at the time. So, so we had the music on a DAT tape. We then sent the whole lot off to Commodore with a whole bunch of discs, um, and then they would transcribe the discs onto the data portion of a gold disc. And the music would then be uh, encoded down on the music tracks. And then you'd get your first gold disc back, which you couldn't actually boot the game from, but you've now got data. So you put the gold disc in and then boot the game from floppy and then read the data off that, tweak it, modify it, send them a whole bunch more floppy disks and just keep doing that. And of course, it's like a three, four day turnaround for each one. 
So each each build of the game, you, you're sending off and waiting a week maybe to, to get all this sort of stuff back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and how did it perform? Did you you know did the CD32 stick around for long enough for you to get a few sales out of that? Well, we we got this is the thing we got a, a decent amount of sales. I think we hit the top top five. I think at one point. Um, and my mum was quite surprised because she'd been down to Exeter and, and went into HMV in Exeter and mine and Adam's faces were up on the wall. Because <laughs> <laughs> we had a fan there, it turns out. I never actually got to see it, but we, we supposedly had a fan down there. And um, it did really well, but unfortunately our publisher never actually got around to paying us and they declared themselves busts and got bought by, they'd been invested in by another company and they claimed they had more rights to the money than us and stuff so that, that's one of the, the bits where the decline of, of shadow software was was when i was basically bust going, going broke by that point yeah. uh, back to the same old story a man's got to put food on his table exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> well from one uh, great game on a failing platform to another um zoop was a lesser known but great puzzle game which i understand you converted on the atari jaguar yeah i was on the team that worked on it i was working at uh, having shut down shadow software i went up to work in newcastle for a bunch called electric spectacle um and uh there's one by back called brian pollock who's a uh, who was a great coder yeah and, and um i think he's still doing stuff stuff nowadays but he, uh, he was managed by a chap called john cook uh, who runs a company called Bad Management, and he's he's kind of everywhere in the industry. He's he's a very clever guy, in, 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 and, and and he's a great he's a great bloke. And he has a lot of teams. Either he's at the thing he was actually part owner of Hookstone at the time, but um, he also managed his load of them. So he would farm out sometimes ports and bits and pieces to other people he manages like like uh, electric spectacle so we ended up doing this this version of zoop on the on the jaguar we were actually working on demolition man for the jaguar uh, uh, and that was going badly um basically because the, the, it was actually originally done on the 3do and virgin had decided they wanted it on the jaguar but the 3do team had all left virgin I'm not quite sure of the situation there. So we just suddenly got all these CDs from the 3DO version were asked, asked to port it. And uh, I joined Electric Spectacle while they were already a year or so into that and, and struggling. And I had to take the audio stuff. They, they had all the, the, um, the voiceover stuff for the game uh, done on these CDs, but they were all encrypted. So I had to crack the encryption on this and de- uh, and um, and decode them. So we had then the raw audio, so we could use it in the game. And um, a part of the deal was that, that, that this game that Virgin would supply all the resources for it. Uh, and and we're sort of looking at this game, thinking, well, we're never ever going to make any money on this one. This is terrible, you know. So I'm there, I'm cracking all this audio, and I finally, I finally work out what they've done, cracked the audio, got the raw audio. It was all in Japanese. They didn't have any of the English audio. It was only the Japanese audio. So the good, the good thing being, that meant they'd broken the contract and not actually supplied us with all the resources. Ah, so we were able to get out of the contract. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, so then, of course, we started on on Zoop, uh, and that that was sort of the, the we got the PC version of that, and, and and being done properly, they actually supplied us with everything to work on it, and it was rather a fun one. I, I was working on sound stuff for that, I think, because uh, I, I, I started playing around with the DSP and stuff on on the Jaguar, 
So I was I was mostly working on, on the, the sound side of it. Um, Adam actually did a completely new graphic set for it as well, um, which the Hookstone guys loved. Uh, and everyone thought, yeah, we're gonna we, we've got to use this. But Sony vetoed because the PlayStation version wasn't going to look as good. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the PlayStation version had to look the best, so it got vetoed. <laughs> And how did you find the Jag? Did you, you know, did you have any affection for that platform? Or? Uh, yeah, it was a love-hate relationship. Okay. Um, it was a fun little machine. Atari were doomed. Um, Atari's support for it was actually pretty good. But, but it was obvious that it, it was poorly planned. You know, the, the CD read was too slow. We Looking at things like the um, the flash memory storage, I mean, the Commodore's, the CD32 was bad. You only have 1K of flash memory for everything. You know, the Jaguar was a little better, but the memory cards for it would actually burn out after about 2,000 uses or something. Oh, wow. You could only do a finite number of rewrites to it before they burn out because it's early flash memory technology. The CD was slow and unreliable. The 68,000 uh, variant of the chip, I actually found a hardware bug on the chip. <laughs> the variant they were using, one of the instructions didn't work. Um, and then we had to tell, tell Atari, and they didn't believe us, and we sent them some code. And we go, oh, oh, right, okay, yeah, don't use that instruction. <laughs> um, but the DSP was great. I really did like it. It's my first go at proper parallel processing stuff, and, and uh, I really did like playing around with the DSP. I, I don't know off the top of my head. It may well have been the same DSP as they had in the Falcon. Uh, I think so. I think so, because yeah. part of the dev kit was a, Fal- was a Falcon. We have one oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So as we move then into the new millennium, you're credited on games such as Croc 2 and mm-hmm. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone on the PlayStation. These are games coming out of big software houses, so you've already by this point had to adjust to working in larger teams than you're perhaps used to. Yeah. How did you find that transition as someone who had spent over a decade of coding games from start to finish yourself? I think I got lucky. Um, okay. With um, Electric Spectacle, it was a nice small team. The Electric Spectacle basically got consumed by by John Cook and John Ripman's company, Cranberry Source. So originally we started as Cranberry Source North, and then moved. Adam and I moved down to London to become part of their team down there because they as they shut down Cranberry Source North, and then Cranberry Source then got bought out, or the, the components of it got bought out by Argonaut, who wanted to sort of fatten themselves up for for an IPO, and so we all got taken along to Argonaut. Um, for various reasons, uh, I wasn't going to be on the project with the uh, ex-Cranberry team. So uh, I got interviewed by Ke- uh, Keith Robinson, who was their um, uh, executive producer at the time at Argonaut. Uh, he said, oh, what have you done? I said, well, I've done all this stuff on Amos and, and um, you know, Jetstrike and all these kind of things. He said, oh, right, we've got our own in-house programming language, uh, which is like a scripting language. And their script, their language was, dis- was originally intended for their, their game designers to use, but it turned out to be a bit too heavy for them. But it was really good for gameplay programmers to sit down and write stuff for the games. So, so most of the Argonaut stuff at the time uh, on what we called the Croc engine was based on this ASL language. So he said, give that a go. I'll drop you in with the Croc team, see, see how you get on. And I really got on well with them. So, so it was. It was. Um, we were, they'd finished Croc One, started working on Croc Two, and I got to actually sit down and, and do nothing but gameplay programming. I didn't have to touch the engine. I'm not really an engine coder, so being able to sit down and just write stuff 
for, 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 for you know sort of content of the game was a, was a lot more fun. Uh, and and there was restrictions on the language in in some of the stuff it could actually do. But again, you having grown up on on variations of basic, it's like okay, I, I can deal with that. There are, there are tricks and ways around and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of the, the big thing that bugged me all the way through is it didn't have a raise. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so you had to do sneaky tricks to do a raise. <laughs> And then uh, following that, you make the transition into the world of mobile gaming in the Apple ecosystem Ooh. with games such as Flick Fishing, which sold over a million copies. Congratulations uh, actually, on that. Uh, five million sales, 50 million downloads. Wow. Huge yeah. amount. Yeah. Huge amount of sales. Uh, that was released in 2008, I believe, yeah. with your company uh, Strange Flavor. Mm-hmm. Uh, was mobile game development a place that you found was better suited then to your old school developer roots? Uh, early, especially in the early days. Yeah. Uh, the weird thing was the, the, all the games coming out on the, uh, on, you know, on, on the iPhone at the time were the sort of things I'd written as 10-liners back in the Amos days. <laughs> so, so they were really, really simple games. And there was a case of getting down to what is the absolute pure element of a game that you can fit in this tiny amount of space, <laughs> you know, and and then of course there's a lot of these, a lot of programmers have been used to AAA games, trying to get their head around getting back into this small space of writing games for, for a very small amount of memory and a very small amount of disk space because you're limited to 10 megs and everything at the time, which you know, old me back on on you know back on working on the Apple II would be like 10 megs is massive. I'll never fill fill that amount because. <laughs> By this point, I've been working on the Xbox 360, um, so coming back down to 10 megs again was actually uh, was actually quite fun. Yeah, yeah. And you described the company um, Strange Flavor as a classic two-man game development company on your website. The yeah. other man being your brother Adam. Yeah. Um, I mean, you clearly have a good working relationship to have worked with him over so many decades. Uh, where do your skills and his skills lie? Is that overlap? Or? There's a little bit of overlap because I've been teaching him to code for years because I, I think it's always important that everybody on the team has at least some basic understanding of what's going on. Um, so so I, I was going to, I was trying to be a musician and realized I wasn't good enough at it to the point where if I wanted to be a musician, I'd have to do nothing but practice, mm. which means I'd never actually enjoy it and, and realise my skills lay elsewhere. But Adam picked up on that because uh, I got into it from like, the idea of uh, synthesizers and computer-controlled music. I'd, I'd seen the Tomorrow's World thing about uh, the, the, the Green Gate and stuff like that. I thought, oh, wow, that's cool. So that's how I got into it. And Adam got into it by me building up a small studio um, to, to work with. And he kind of took over that and, and seriously ran with it. So, so he be, developed himself into being a proper professional musician. Uh, but also his talents at the time lay in, in, in art. And again, he's developed the, the, the graphic side to, from 2D art all the way up now to, to working with, you know, with um, sort of 3D uh, and so on for, for all our stuff. So he handled the artistic side of it. I generally did the game plan, game design and programming side of it, and we kind of discuss on the game design. So there are a few arguments every now and again, but some of you know some of our best ideas have started where Adams had an idea for a game design and fleshed it out, and then I said, well, actually, if we just change a few things here and there, and then you'll come back and say, ah oh, no, but if you change that, 
Um, things like Airburst, for instance, started uh, as the idea of being castles in the sky, very much like warlords. Um, and then Adam said, well, yeah, what if we, put, if we make it balloons instead of bricks? It'll be a lot cooler. And, yeah, okay, that's a lot more cute. And then the whole thing spun into a very different sort of, a very different concept from, from what it was originally. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so this kind of thing where things go back and forth, and, it, and a lot of stuff again, it's iteration. Again, think things will kind of uh, go through, through through various phases, and we will scrap stuff, you know, uh, every now and again. And sometimes it'll just kind of come back. <laughs> sure, sure. And then just bring us up to the present day. Then, what are you guys working on at the moment? Well, uh, basically, with Strange Flavor, it's now uh, we've licensed most of our Strange Flavor stuff to a bunch called Game Club. A really cool new new uh, concept on on uh, iOS and actually now on Android as well. Um, what they're doing is they're licensing all, all the old games that were really big hits on iOS that have fallen out of the way because the system's updated and, and developers just haven't been able to afford to or have time to update them and keep them working. So there's all these <clears throat> great old games um, that that um, weren't available anymore. So they've said, well, actually, we'd like to license those. And they're now doing a, a, a system like Apple Arcade, but subtly different, in that you, pay, you, you can download any of the games for free off the App Store, and you can play like a demo level or equivalent of them, or you can play, I think they've done it now with ads as well. You could play them with ads. But the important thing is if you subscribe to Game Club through any of these games, all of them are fully unlocked with no ads and no IAP. Mm-hmm. So you suddenly got, uh, a, a, they started with 50 games, they're approaching 100 games now, I think, um, of all the, all this wonderful back catalogue uh, of iOS games. So we've licensed most of our games to them, and four of them, I think, are already on there. So Flip Fishing is now on there, Flip Fishing Redux. Uh, Warpack Grunts is on there, uh, Spinny Wings is on there, so that's a fun recent one we did. Um, and what are the ones on there at the moment? Yeah, there's, 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 there's a few of us on, on there at the moment, and they're, they're keeping on bringing more and more of them back. And the important thing for us is we were really struggling to get the time to keep any of these things up to date, because once you've got a whole bunch of titles like that and you're working on new stuff, we just cannot keep up with, with sort of adding content. So, and they've got a really good team to do that. So so they're, they're doing that, and they're, they're you know sort of listening to the fans and, and starting to have new content, they've updated everything to high def, you know. So um, that's that's a kind of cool thing there. That's let us keep working on some of our own stuff for future projects, um, but mainly so we can put food on the table. And because they actually have a good bunch, we started working with um, Shifty Eye Games, who are a new outfit in Calgary. So last year um, I helped them port four games over to Apple Arcade. Um, <clears throat> three released through Shifty Eye Games, and one was us helping uh, uh, another bunch uh, called Cleversoft release their game Earth Knight. So we've got uh, Operator 41, um, Stranded Sails, and a, bun- a game called Discolored, uh, released under Shifty Eye Games on, the- on Apple Arcade. And um, <clears throat> because that lends me back to working in t- on, on entirely Apple stuff again, so I'm quite happy with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it's all three platforms as well, which is which is also yeah, yeah, is fun for me. And, and now we're working on a new top secret. I can't tell you anything about it yet. <laughs> <laughs> and is everything that you do within at the moment within that Apple ecosystem 
Do you do anything on the Android platform at all? I don't. Okay. Uh, uh, Game Club are actually going to be porting some of their games to Android. So, okay. um, so a lot of them are, the way they're licensed is if they want to, they can port it to Android. So they're just starting to open up their Android side of it. I've dabbled in Android and it's just like... <sighs> <laughs> It's, it's an absolute pain in the neck to develop for, um, the, the, for various reasons, and there's no money in it for, for people like me. Uh, I don't have a million quid to spend on advertising to get a million point one back. So um, it, I, just, I just could never I, – I, I we've really, really, really tried to do free-to-play, but we just don't have the resources. And all the marketing now, so I'm just – terrible at marketing <laughs> yeah why do you think it works better with apple then is that because they push do they push product more on with more emphasis on the quality of the product rather uh, than it just being... that um i apple users tend to be in the mindset of paying for things right okay android is entirely based on the premise that everything should be free you know the, the whole point of android in the first place was here's a cheap phone and the operating system is free and everything is free. And once you start with that, getting people to actually part with money or something worth money, like their time to look at adverts or whatever, becomes a struggle. Because mm-hmm. Android is purely there to gather information for Google. You know, it's yeah. yeah. Well, Aaron, um, I've really enjoyed your story. Um Partly because your point of entry was Stoss and Amos. And we hear so many stories from coders who seemingly do the impossible in the early 80s with just hardcore assembly code. But you, your point of entry was the same tools that I was using. It didn't turn me into an international game developer selling millions of copies of games, but it's nice to know that it would, it may have been possible. Yeah, okay, it's always possible, yeah. I mean, basically, I started... Before that, learn, my learning through through you know sort of doing six five zero two and uh, basic others, but but yeah, it is possible to go in through Stoss. Yeah. And I know a few other coders who did start with Stoss and Amos, uh, who've kind of gone on gone on to things as well. So it is doable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Aaron, on that note, thank you very much for your time today, sir. Thank you. <laughs> If you enjoy my content and would like to support The Cave while receiving a completely ad-free experience and access to releases one week before they go public, then visit patreon.com forward slash retro man cave and join the official cave dwellers. Thank you for your support.